Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit Fort Christmas. So the war started in 1835. It lasted for seven years. It ended in 1842. And Fort Christmas, of course, was built in 1837. The Winter Park Bach Festival's Christmas concert is being televised nationally on PBS... You look at classical music as the original inspiration of the composer that goes to the inspiration of the artist, that goes to the inspiration of the audience, and that feeds back around again to everyone being a part of that experience. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Thousands of people from throughout Central Florida converge on the small town of Christmas every year to have the town's postmark appear on their Christmas cards. Although East Orlando keeps moving closer and closer, Christmas is still a rural community located in East Orange County, about halfway between Orlando and Titusville. Fort Christmas Historic Park features a collection of historic cracker houses from the late 1800s and early 1900s, cow camps, and a schoolhouse, but at the heart of the park is a replica of Fort Christmas, which was originally built during the Second Seminole Indian War. Vicki Pruitt is a recreation specialist at Fort Christmas Historic Park. The war was mainly being fought because um, of people moving into the state, and settling, and they were uh, encroaching upon the land that Seminoles were using, so they, there would be skirmishes. There was also the slavery issue because the slaves would leave Georgia and hide out among the Seminole Indians, and so they were always having um, troops coming down or people coming down trying to recapture slaves. And so it was basically a slave issue, a land issue. Um, of course, they couldn't agree on, on how to use the land. So the war started in 1835. It lasted for seven years. It ended in 1842. And Fort Christmas, of course, was built in 1837. Many Florida towns grew up around forts that were constructed during the Second Seminole Indian War. For example, Orlando grew up around Fort Gatlin, Sanford around Fort Mellon, and Fort Pierce is still called that from the Seminole War Fort named after Lieutenant Colonel Kendrick Pierce. The idea was to build the forts about a day's walk apart so the soldiers could walk from one fort to another during the day and have protection at night. Fort Christmas was constructed in what is now East Orange County. Vicki Pruitt. They were in a winter campaign in December of 1837. They left uh, Fort Mellon, which is over on Lake, what we call Lake Monroe now, and they were trying to establish a chain of supply forts to keep the army that was fighting the Indians supplied with the materials they need. So they were following the St. John's as close as they could without being up to their waist in water. 
and uh, establishing the forts, they arrived at a place about a mile north of here on December 25th and started building their fort. So they named their fort Fort Christmas because they started it on Christmas Day. Fort Christmas was a typical Seminole Indian War fort made of tall pine pickets. The fort is 80 linear square feet with two blockhouses that are 20 square feet each with a storehouse and a powder magazine within the walls of the fort. Joseph Adams is a recreation specialist at Fort Christmas Historic Park and describes what's on display in the Fort Christmas replica. Well, Blockhouse 1 has exhibits on the Second Seminole Indian War, the soldiers and the Seminoles. Uh, Blockhouse 2 has uh, some of our more prized possessions from the Christmas community and exhibits uh, community life. And the storehouse has exhibits on some of the tools they would have used and then some of the tools the pioneers used. And we even have a model of one of the steamboats that went up and down the St. John's River. In addition to the replica of Fort Christmas, the historic park features two cow camps, the Union Christmas School, and a variety of historic cracker houses from different eras. As Vicki Pruitt explains, each house is staged with artifacts and exhibits. We tried to make the homes look like someone was living there and had just stepped out for the day. Um, each home usually has at least one bedroom, but instead of repeating bedrooms, we put special exhibits to tell how the pioneers used to live. We've got a, a textile exhibit, we've got a post office exhibit, a cattle ranching exhibit, uh, and a hunting, fishing, trapping exhibit. But each home you, ha, that has a kitchen has the kitchen represented, the main living room represented, and uh, a bedroom. They were moved from their original location. Most of them were donated. And then we upfitted them to represent different time periods. Uh, some of them we took back to the very beginning. Others of them we left at a later period. Uh, but all of them had to have a certain amount of work done to them to get to the the periods that we represent here. The cracker houses on display at Fort Christmas Historic Park feature familiar names from Florida's pioneer days, such as Simmons, Wheeler, Bass, and Yates. Most of the families that settled in the Fort Christmas area, they, they came in through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and into Northern Florida, and then on down into the Central Florida, and then they even proceeded on down South. So you see these names repeated in especially rural communities all throughout the state of Florida. Uh, the Yates family, I know they're widespread, the Simmons family. Um, we don't have houses for all of our pioneer families, of course, but the Tuckers are throughout the state. The Osteens are throughout the state. There's even a little community called Osteen, Florida, the Browns. Um, so these pioneers, when they arrived here, you know, in the early times, in, when they arrived in Central Florida, like in about 1858, uh, and then spread out from there, they were very large families. And so as these kids got a little older, then they continued to spread out through, you know, throughout the different communities in the state and build land. Everybody wants land. That's the main issue. Finding a home. As Joseph Adams explains, two or three groups of students come to Fort Christmas Historic Park every week. Well, we have about eight different educational programs we can do with the students. Uh, today's program is just going to be a general tour. They'll make and taste butter. Uh, we have a program, uh, which is my favorite, children's chores. Uh, where they make and taste butter, but they also wash clothes, snap beans, uh, feed the chickens, they pump water. And the students, you know, the, you know, a lot of students have chores, but the idea of the kind of chores and daily activities that the children had to do 
in the past is quite fascinating to them and very different. It's like you went back in time. Yeah. It's like we're in the back. Age of the porch. Okay. Okay. By the early 1860s, we had families arriving out here, and throughout the 60s, by the end of the 60s, early 70s, we're talking 1800s, uh, we had probably 20 families living out here. And these are our uh, uh, families that are still in the area today. A lot of them, their descendants are here. They built farms, they had ranches, they lived off the land. When you came out here into the wilderness, you brought your wagon and your family, you brought your farm tools. Basically, though, you didn't work for anybody else. You worked for yourself. Okay? You worked for your own family unit. And in the old days, the families were very large. A small family would be six kids. A large family might have 13 or 14 kids. So this is a lot of people to feed, isn't it? So they had to all work. And, and that's one thing I want you to think of is as we go through the day, um, the, you kids would be working. You would have to work for your food. You had to raise your own garden. You had to have fields of corn. They had fields of sugar cane. Um, you had to go hunting for extra food. Of course, you had your livestock. And one thing they found when they got into this area is there were wild cows. There were cattle running all over the state. In addition to frequent tours for students, Fort Christmas Historic Park hosts a couple of major events during the year. Not surprisingly, one of them recognizes Christmas. Well, the first weekend, full weekend in December, is always Cracker Christmas for us. It essentially is our largest special event of the year. We have uh, about, a, about 150 to 175 crafters, people who make handmade crafts to sell. Uh, then we have uh, demonstrations of you know pioneer skills. Uh, we, the syrup making, which is a big thing people come back for every year, uh, soap making, uh, wood carving, uh, weaving, spinning, uh, whip making this year, uh, just, you know, they're blacksmithing. about blacksmithing. It's about 100, yeah, we do about 50 to 60 different uh, demonstrations. Of course, we have a Confederate camp, and then uh, the Historical Society sells barbecue, which is always really good. And all of our community groups, our nonprofit local groups, the 4-H, the FFA, uh, they come and they earn money for their group by selling hot dogs or gator bites or um, beef, beef on a stick, stick, that type of thing. We also have another larger event, uh, our Bluegrass Festival, which is normally the third weekend in March. Right. And we bring in about four local bluegrass groups, but they are really good groups. And again, we have some crafters, but it's not as big a, a craft show as, uh, say, Cracker Christmas. But it's two days under the oaks of uh, pure bluegrass music. Visitors to Fort Christmas Historic Park enjoy the historic homes and the fort replica, but there's also a playground and picnic pavilions that attract many people. We get a lot of local people coming here to picnic. I mean, our park is maxed out as far as the pavilions go every weekend with picnickers but then we also get senior groups that come for parties and functions like during the week sometimes we have a lot of people dropping in who are from overseas you know they're they they see our sign on the road or they've googled central florida and something comes up and they they stop in here and some of them repeatedly yes. come back 
with whoever they bring on their next holiday to, to, to see us. Vicki Pruitt and Joseph Adams are recreation specialists at Fort Christmas Historic Park in East Orange County. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. The holiday break is a great time to binge watch the television series Florida Frontiers. Just go to our website at myfloridahistory.org to download archived episodes. If you like this radio program, you'll love our TV series. That's myfloridahistory.org. Greeting cards have all been sent. The Christmas rushes through. But I still have one wish to make. A special one for you. Merry Christmas, darling. We're apart, that's true. But I can dream, and in my dreams, I'm Christmasing with you. Many soldiers in the Second Seminole War had to spend the holidays far away from their loved ones in the untamed wilderness of Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we were just visiting Fort Christmas, which was originally constructed during the Second Seminole War, but that wasn't the only fort built during the Christmas season during that conflict. Yeah, that's right. Uh, during the Second Seminole War, uh, the federal government learned quickly that they had to spread their troops out uh, as wide as they could and sort of cast a wide net if they were going to have any luck at finding the Seminoles, you know, the, the very small bands of Seminoles. So what they did was set up um, three major columns that sort of moved south through the peninsula. Uh, and on that easternmost column through what was considered the Indian River country, you know, through parts of uh, Flagler County down into Volusia, Brevard, and uh, Indian River County, uh, there were a number of, of small forts that were built uh, around the same time, 1837, 1838. Um, one of those forts was, was named Fort Anne, and it was actually in uh, what is now North Brevard County, actually part of the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge, just north of, of NASA. Uh, and this small fort, it was actually more of a, of a stockade. It was very a, a very crude structure. Um, and it was more of a, a, a kind of transition point from the Mos Mosquito Lagoon area into the Indian River area. Uh, and these columns of soldiers at that time were moving, uh, they were utilizing the Indian River Lagoon, this north-south waterway, to travel as uh, quickly and efficiently as possible down through the, through the interior. Um, and, and that was called upon. And, and uh, he was uh, attached to one of these columns uh, heading south into the peninsula and, uh, and found himself at, uh, at Fort Anne in uh, December of 1837. So from this journal, it seems as though the, the soldiers had a, a pretty de decent Christmas in Florida, even though it was wartime. I'd say so, and and when we think about the Second Seminole War, we generally think about the hardships that that a lot of these soldiers faced, which which certainly occurred. I mean, it was very very difficult 
uh, living at that time, and, and many of the soldiers, in fact, died of disease. Uh, but, but during the winter campaigns, when most of the action essentially was happening, um, throughout this journal, you, you know, you'll see Mott sort of talking about, uh, he mentions the 4th of July quite a bit, but he always talks about Christmas every year that he was in Florida. And we have a really interesting passage from uh, December of 1837 when he was uh, uh, spending at least a week, I believe about a week, two weeks at, at Fort Ant. So they had a little bit of uh, of time to kind of sit back and relax. There wasn't a whole lot of action going on. They were just drilling during the day. Uh, but uh, but on Christmas Day, uh, they were allowed essentially to have the day off. And I'll read a quick passage here. They talk a little bit about their, their Christmas dinner, which was a little bit different than the traditional uh, uh, you know, New England Christmas dinner. Uh, but he says here, we reveled upon gopher soup and whisker toddy, uh, which were the chief luxuries that graced our board. Uh, by and by, as regards to gopher soup, he says here, no epicure in the world but would smack his lips could he only get a taste of this rare dish no only, known only in Florida. And again, he talks about drinking whiskey along with the, that gopher soup. Uh, but they, he goes on in other passages. They, they go chasing after snakes and, and uh, uh, they hunt owls and, and egrets and some of the other birds that um, lived around the, the Mosquito Lagoon area. Um, but he talks a little bit, sort of uh, reflects on Christmas. And he says, uh, but then it was Christmas, which only comes once a year. And to many of us about those times only came once in several years. So this is kind of interesting. You know, he talks about um, in later years while he was in Florida, even though it was Christmas, generally they were involved in some sort of military engagement. Uh, they were marching, they were drilling, because during the, the winter months, that was when the, the military, the U.S. military moved um, uh, very often. You know, they, they took advantage of the, of the, uh, of the weather. Um, so they, they really didn't get a, a chance uh, to kind of sit down and, and enjoy Christmas. Um, but he also talks about this uh, feast of reason and flow of soul uh, and, and uh, music. Essentially, there, was, there were a few of the uh, soldiers who uh, got a little too much whiskey and decided they could, uh, they could sing. And uh, he goes on to sort of describe their, uh, their revelries into the night and how they uh, um, probably disturbed some of the owls who would hoot at them periodically. <laughs> So even during this uh, this long extended conflict, uh, these guys seem to uh, enjoy their holiday. I'd say so. In fact, uh, a few days later on New Year's Day, they were again given a little bit of time off, and uh, he mentions taking a uh, uh, taking a dive into the Atlantic, which uh, back in Massachusetts uh, would have been impossible. But uh, at a uh, at a, a balmy eighty degrees, uh, they were able to uh, to strip down and enjoy a day at the beach. Well, thanks, Ben, and I hope you're having a happy holiday as well. Thank you. Happy holidays. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Hey, 
Watching the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park's Christmas in the Park concert on December 5th was like stepping into someone's miniature tabletop display of a quaint village during the holidays. There was no snow, but the temperature was very cool. The Amtrak passenger train made several stops in the park, which actually added to the ambiance. Tiffany stained glass panels set up around the park, courtesy of the Morse Museum of American Art, completed the scene. On December 14th and 15th, the Bach Festival presented their classic Christmas program in the Spanish Mediterranean-style Knowles Memorial Chapel at Rollins College. That program is so popular, there were four performances. If you didn't get an opportunity to experience one of the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park's Christmas concerts, there's good news. A filmed version of A Classic Christmas will be televised nationally on PBS stations this week. Betsy Gwynn is executive director of the Bach Festival, now in its 85th season. It was 1935. Winter Park was a winter destination for wealthy New Englanders to come and take advantage of this beautiful weather on our lakes. And the Knowles Chapel was just two years old. And there was interest from the dean of the chapel and the, the music department to create a program honoring the 250th anniversary of the birth of Johann Sebastian Bach. So they presented a Bach Vespers concert and it was standing room only. They ran out of programs. There was a woman in the audience named Isabel Sprague Smith, and she attended and recognized right away that the community was hungry for such a quality classical music program. And she made it her mission to create an annual Bach Festival based on the Bethlehem Bach Festival in Pennsylvania to bring the beauty of Bach to the South. And she really spearheaded it, created a, a founding committee um, contacted artists to perform, scholars to lecture. We were broadcast nationally on NBC radio in the late 40s and early 50s. The first organization to present the B minor mass south of the Mason-Dixon line. So she set the ball rolling. John Sinclair is conductor and artistic director of the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park. Well, they wanted to commemorate the 250th anniversary of Bach's birth. And so the day after his birthday, on March 22, uh, 1935, they had a program of, of various Bach works. They thought it was such a good idea, they should repeat it again. And they did it the next year, and, and then the third year, and you know how the saying goes, you do it three times, it's a tradition. So it continued on for many, many years. And then the founder of it, Mrs. Sprague Smith, and the original conductor, Christopher Honas, Mrs. Sprague Smith died, and she was really the cheerleader. And the president at that time of the college, Hamilton Holt, called everyone together and said, are we going to continue this? We don't really have our uh, cheerleader anymore, and maybe this was a nice run, but we should do something. Do any of you want to take this under your wing? Well, the story goes that uh, Mr. John Tiki, who was there, said, well, you know, I'll take it for a year or two. And that meant 52 years as the president of the Bach Festival Society.
The broadcast of a classic Christmas concert by the Bach Festival Society of Winter Park gives the organization national exposure this week. While it's an independent organization, the Bach Festival has been based at Rollins College since its inception. John Sinclair and Betsy Gwynn say the Bach Festival has had a significant impact on Florida culture. The Bach Festival Society being founded here, uh, it became pretty immediately a private organization. Uh, Mr. Tiki did not want the Bach Festival to have any uh, negative impact on the college financially. So it became very independent pretty much from the beginning. But there is certainly a wonderful relationship. We are housed at Rollins College, we are started at Rollins College. It's no accident that I'm a professor here as well. That makes sense. But the impact is it immediately brings a world-class organization right in the middle of the, of the heart of, of Rollins College and into the middle of Winter Park and beyond the Central Florida and area. Our impact is also felt in all the choir members that have come through here and how many teachers that we have trained that are now in the schools teaching and how many church choir directors. Uh, it is truly a labor of love and, and, it, it, and it expands exponentially based on uh, the number of people that we've we've had in our organization, both as a as a performer and as a uh, audience member, and I've always thought that you look at classical music as the original inspiration of the composer, that goes to the inspiration of the artist, that goes to the inspiration of the audience, and that feeds back around again to everyone being a part of that experience. Very participatory. We have many choir members that have been with us for, for decades because it becomes such a part of their life. And in turn, we become part of the life of this college. And I, I love to see students that come in and sing and spend four years as part of the choir or a few. And I know a few that have gone on to take maybe positions with Rollins and continue to sing. And we have members of the faculty that have also been with us for decades and what an important aspect Bach Festival is to their life and then to all of those singers who then take the training that Dr. Sinclair gives them that practice and polish and they take it back to their own church choirs or to their own other musical interests. So I think Bach has tentacles far and wide throughout the community and we have choir members that come from nine counties throughout Central Florida to participate so it's not just an Orange County um, Bach Choir, but it's really Central Florida's Bach Choir. The concert Bach Festival Society of Winter Park, A Classic Christmas, is airing repeatedly this week on PBS television affiliates across the country. Check your local PBS schedule for airtimes. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. 
The program is edited by John White. From all of us at the Florida Historical Society, Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.